Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 298, The Curate's Egg. Before we start, I have a podcast recommendation for you, Jenny and her The Australian Histories podcast. Jenny has a style I really enjoy and picks great topics, so I recommend it heartily. And while we're on it, here's Jenny herself to very briefly tell you more. Hello history fans, I'm Jenny from the Australian Histories podcast, where we take a fresh look at some of the brilliant stories from Australia's past. If you have an interest in Australian history, you can dip in and out of the topic episodes that interest you and learn a little about the important and iconic incidents, people and places of Australia. Topics range from ironclad bushrangers, British convicts and intrepid explorers, to the beloved platypus or the mighty emu. Ponder the construction of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the massive dingo and rabbit-proof fences, or consider the Eureka Rebellion. If you can cope with my Aussie accent, I'm sure you'll find something that'll pique your interest. Have a look at the episodes available at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's history spelt with I-E-S. Cheers, everyone. Thanks, Jenny. Now, this week's episode showed signs of serious misplanning, for which I feel the need to apologise. And I am, at the moment, sitting naked in my shed, wearing sackcloth and ashes and a Thomas Beckett-branded hair shirt in penance for my error. Incidentally, I hope you are all reminded of the History of England shop and its mugs, shirts and listeries. If you would appreciate some History of England-branded hair shirts, I would be delighted to oblige. Anyway, what is this massive error into which I have blundered, you ask? Well, essentially... I was happily walking down the path of religion and we'd got to Regnans and Excelsis, I think. Now I want to move on and backwards to some of the more famous aspects of Elizabethan history. Sea ships, pirates, privateering, the colourful exploits of Drake and Hawkins. In the process, what with all the protests and focus on racism at the moment, I thought I would also focus a bit on black Tudors and a snippet of African history. Just because it's in the air and also because it's always invigorating learning something new. At the time of writing, I have no idea how many episodes this will take, but take my hand and we'll find out together. Although, worth noting, we won't get there until next week. Also, I want to introduce a new character for you, a fun-loving high liver called Francis Walsingham, called Franny to his pals. Not, but one of those iconic names in Elizabethan history. So, I'm going to consider this episode to be like the curate and the egg. The story goes that an impecunious curate was eating at the breakfast table of the bishop, eating a boiled egg, which turned out to be rotten. Obviously, though, being English, he didn't want to make a fuss, and so he was bravely wading through it when the good bish noticed and, horrified, cried, Oh dear, your egg is bad. Oh dear. That put the curate squarely in the English hell of social awkwardness, and he replied, Oh no, my lord, parts of it are very good. Hence the expression, good in parts. This is a long-winded way of telling you that the episode you're about to listen to will be a bit like the curate's egg. Good in parts, but alternatively, bit of a mess. Sorry, and all. 
So the first job is to polish off the story on which I was about to embark, since I mentioned that events in France would ratchet religious tensions up another notch. A bit of background. The French religious wars have already kicked off, as we have heard. Although France was still largely Catholic, the growth of Calvinism had been dramatic and swift. There were probably over a million Huguenots by 1600. At this time of crisis and division, France suffered the problems of a series of minors or inexperienced kings on the throne and factionalism at court. When Henry II died in 1559, he was succeeded by the underage Francis II, and then Charles IX was just a nipper of 10 in 1560 and only made it to 24 before he died in 1574. Henry III was a relative of OAP when he succeeded in 1574, and he lasted until 1589. In the meantime, the power behind the throne was the regent, the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici. At court, the two religious factions tore at each other. The Catholics led by the Guise, the Huguenots by the Bourbon family. I crudely paraphrase and summarise and grovel with apology to any French listening. Catherine tried to manage the factions and steer away to peace, but variously she and her sons followed a politique strategy of trying to ignore religion, or at least to prioritise national unity over religious division, appeasing Huguenots or indulging in wild swings to one side or t'other. To one of such wild swings we will arrive in August 1572. One important thing to recognise is that the French wars of religion have, from the start, an international angle. Their chaos would, for example, free Philip II's hand and allow him to release resources against the Dutch Republic and against England. We've already seen that England has already made a reasonably disastrous intervention in Le Havre in 1561-2. In 1572, Prince Louis of Nassau led a Huguenot army in the Netherlands in support of the Dutch Revolt, and the Catholics from 1578 sought to involve the Pope and bring external support into the conflict, as well as lead Catholic, military and spiritual revival in France. In 1570, Catherine de' Medici had tried to broker a lasting peace with the Peace of Saint-Germain, bringing the Huguenot leaders Gaspard de Coligny and Henri de Navarre, or Henri de Bourbon, into the Royal Council. And in 1572, a traditional route to peace was also pursued, as Catherine married off her daughter, Margaret of Valois, to the Huguenot leader, Henri de Navarre. And so, in 1572, Paris was buzzing with this marriage, a scandal to the Catholics, and a sign of happy ascendancy for the Huguenot. A mass of Huguenot political leaders came to the capital to celebrate the nuptials, and presumably push the boat out just un peu. Paris had another visitor at the time, a delegation from England, would you believe, seeking a French alliance, and led by a man called Francis Walsingham. This is a name you might well know, and if you don't, then fear not, gentle listener, for you will learn to know it and learn to love it. Well, learn to know it. But when I was a lad, he was all about Elizabeth, Drake, Burley and Walsingham. Rather unfairly, Leicester, Essex, Hatton, Howard and all that lot, well, they were just love interest and also rands. Also, of course, Walsingham's great claim to popular fame was as a spymaster, possibly with morally dubious methods on occasion. But look, I was a callous 12-year-old. What did I care about that? But in that reputation, I, in company with some proper historians, have done Walsingham something of a disservice. 
while Singham was much more than simply a spymaster, good though he was at that. As will gradually unfold, Walsingham's political influence range much more broadly than that. Once promoted to council as the Queen's principal secretary, replacing Burley in that role, his strategic passions remained consistently for Protestantism, a vigorous interventionist foreign policy, exploration and empire, suppression of Catholicism in England, the destruction of Mary Queen of Scots and the union of Scotland and England. His opinion on Mary Queen of Scots was reasonably mm, uncomplicated, shall we say. So long as that devilish woman liveth, neither her majesty must take account to continue her quiet possession of her crown, nor her faithful servants assure themselves of safety of their lives. He was, like Burley, something of a warrior and a workaholic. In a paper of 1568, he wrote that there is less danger in fearing too much than fearing too little. And also, there is nothing more dangerous than security. So, not a relaxing person to be around, probably. And his relationship with the Queen, meanwhile, is something of a poser. Basically, he thought she was a bit rubbish. And if Elizabeth's refusal to make decisions at key points, or indeed to do what she was told by the patriarchy of the council, irritated Burley, it positively brought Walsingham out in a rash. As a consequence, Walsingham followed the teenage approach and nagged his queen mercilessly until she must have rushed to hide in the cupboard when she heard he was coming to see her. But Elizabeth never fired him, probably because she understood his quality and had broad enough shoulders and the maturity to deal with the nagging or avoid being swayed by faction. Unlike her dad, it might be noted, who would surely have had his entrails removed in a fit of irritation. Just to polish off the summary bit, here are a couple of quotes from the Oxford Database of National Biography that might amuse you. Reactions to his death, which give an idea of just how formidable Walsingham was. The first was from a Spanish spy to Philip II, because, yep, everyone else had spies too, not just us. He wrote, Secretary Walsingham has just expired, at which there is much sorrow. Sat in his fastness in El Escorial, the massive palace Philip had built in Madrid, hidden away in his small office from which he worked night and day for the greater glory of God and empire, Philip read the report, as he pretty much read every official paper or request of any significance. On this occasion, he wrote next to the words of English sorrow, There, yes, but it is good news here. I remember David Starkey once remarking that historians often learn more about a person from their enemies than they do from their friends. Philip's relief says a lot. The other quote is from Burley, for so long Walsingham's partner in government. He wrote to a friend, about Walsingham's death. I am fully persuaded the Queen's Majesty and her realm, and I and others his particular friends, have had a great loss, both for the public use of his good and painful long services, and for the private comfort I had by his mutual friendship. Well, that's quite touching, and speaks of a camaraderie of the long-standing members of the Privy Council, which doesn't get much of an airing very often. Finally, the impression we have of Walsingham is of a rather grim, religious fanatic, Machiavellian, cold, calculating, controlled, not a lot of laughs on the lad. Well, there is much truth in that characterisation. Actually, Walsingham could be pretty impulsive, in fact. 
and although without doubt he looked to advance the international cause of Protestantism whenever he could, yet his advice was considered and balanced. Furthermore, ruthless and fiercely Protestant he might be, but he firmly believed also in due process for the most part. Walsingham would have been one of those for whom the pace of religious reform was way too slow. Nonetheless, he refused to support Puritans going it alone and taking the law into their own hands. I would have all the Reformation done by public authority. If you knew with what difficulty we retain what we have, and that the seeking of more might hazard that which we already have, you would then deal warily in this time when policy carrieth more sway than zeal. I'm also told they had a sardonic sense of humour, which Elizabeth evidently rather liked. Now I'm going to give you a couple of examples of Elizabethan sardonic humour, which will probably make you cross. Most famously is Elizabeth's sardonic joke, once she'd finally signed Mary's death warrant, that they should inform Walsingham because the grief thereof will go near to kill him outright. Still with me? Or have you left in a huff over poor Mary? If you're still there, I'm going to give you a smattering of Walsingham's sardonic comments. I had a beauty, and then because I didn't have a pen to mark the book, I've gone and lost it. Thoroughly irritating, but it was a note from Walsingham to fiercely Protestant colleagues gathering for a meeting at his house to make themselves at home before he got home a bit late, make themselves at home like Catholics. Catholics, of course, would hardly have been welcome at Walsingham's house, and all the people he was going to meet were fierce Protestants. So, hardly a humdinger, but, you know, an attempt at humour. The quote I do have is Walsingham's comment on incarcerating Catholic priests from abroad, that prisons are the very nurseries of papists. Again, not a humdinger. Walsingham came of the stock of the lesser gentry. Jolly proud of their ancestry, had their own coat of arms, acted as local magistrates but not from that group of knights who went to Parliament and exchanged gifts with the monarch at Christmas. There is no connection between Walsingham and the village of Walsingham in lovely Norfolk, except in unverifiable tradition. He was actually probably born in Kent in 1532, and when his dad died, when he was nubbed and knee-height to a grasshopper, he then moved to Hertfordshire with his mum after her second marriage. Probably. He then turns up at King's College, Cambridge in 1548, although in common with the types preparing for a secular career, he didn't actually take a degree. The provost of King's at the time was one John Cheek, who you may remember also being Edward VI's tutor and a reformist of some note. Walsingham was therefore steeped in the evangelical and Protestant tradition. And it's also worth noting that he was of the first generation who would never have prayed for the Pope or recognised papal authority. Walsingham looked set for a career in the law, heading for Gray's Inn. But the death of Edward VI and the succession of Mary dished that. Because Francis was cut from a sterner cloth than Burley. Not for Walsingham, Burley's Nicodemism. No hobnobbing at the table of the Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury for me, good Lord no. Walsingham was one of the Marian exiles. As Mary sought to reimpose Catholicism, he left. He appears to have spent some time in Basel, which he remembered with great affection, and also in Padua, where he enrolled at the university. After Elizabeth's accession, he was elected as MP for Lyme Regis in Dorset, but he made little impact on Parliament, and in fact, throughout his career, Walsingham shows 
very little enthusiasm for the mother of all parliaments. Sadly, we know pretty much zip of Walsingham's life in the 1560s before 1568. Although in 1566, we know he married Ursula St. Barb. It is therefore a bit mysterious as to why he appears in 1568 in the highest quarters of government, writing a paper for Burley, handling Rodolfi in 1569. In 1570, his career started in earnest when he was made special envoy to the French court, later changed to become the permanent resident ambassador there. This gave Walsingham something of a pain in his wallet. It is a theme of her reign that Elizabeth was as mean as mouse shit, and the allowance he was given was less than it cost him to live, especially at a court as magnificent as France. Initially, Walsingham had an easier job than his predecessor, since the Huguenots were in the ascendant. And then came a proposal from the Huguenot camp that, hey, why doesn't 19-year-old Henry, brother of the king, marry 37-year-old Elizabeth? Obviously, it would be a love match, but while they were at it, Henry was in line for the throne and there was a powerful advocate of the Guise and Catholic faction. So, for Coligny and the Huguenots, a bit of good, honest winkling was in order. That is, winkling Henry from the Guise camp into the arms of Protestant Elizabeth. Catherine de' Medici was keen too. Here would be another potential enemy neutralised. The one person who was not keen, however, was Henry himself. Not keen at all. He was indeed fiercely Catholic and had described Elizabeth already as immoral. Although much sweat and effort was spent over the negotiations, the gap was very wide. Elizabeth essentially wanted to make sure that Henry was shorn of political influence in the same way Philip had been with Mary, and in addition, she refused to allow Henry to publicly practice his religion, and Henry had just two words for that, sacra and bleu. So despite Walsingham's hard work, negotiations faltered. Now this worried Walsingham, not so much because of the succession, although that did worry him, but more because of the international situation that worried him deeply, and he wanted England to have a firm friendship with France to protect them. As he wrote to Leicester, When I particularly consider Her Majesty's state, both at home and abroad, so far as my poor eyesight can discern, and how she is beset by foreign peril, the execution of stayeth only upon the event of this match, I do not see how she can stand if this matter can break off. Around this time, it's possible that Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, came up with a cunning plan, which he advanced to his good chump, Walsingham, who he addressed as, my good friend Francis, that rather than marriage, they turn instead to negotiating a peace treaty. After a lot of toing and froing, a treaty did begin to emerge, obviously, it came naturally to neither French nor English to make love. They were more in the habit of making war. But eventually, in 1572, a defensive alliance was indeed signed, the Treaty of Blois. It was purely defensive, but neither party would help the other's enemies. And specifically, with a few qualms, Catherine and King Charles cut off the old alliance with Scotland and Mary, Queen of Scots, with it and dumped them in the bin. Charles made a brief attempt to hold on to it, but the English negotiator Killigrew lost his rag ever so slightly, or at least was forthright at the idea. Fire and water cannot be together, the one is contrary to the other. 
The League is made for a perpetual and straight amity between you and the Queen's Majesty of England, and you would treat for the Queen's most mortal and dangerous enemy? This cannot stand together. You must take her now for dead. Thus was Mary cut a little further loose on the raft of life. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, so that concludes the introduction of Francis Walsingham and brings us rather neatly, I think, back to August 1572 and that high society marriage of Henry of Navarre and Margaret of Valois and the gathering of the great and the good of the Huguenot clan. Tension was high. Catholics still remembered the assassination of the Duke of Guise many years before, which was blamed on the Huguenot. And the Huguenot really didn't immoral, ladies and gentlemen. They did not tread carefully through the fields of religious sensitivity. There was nothing emollient about them. The Protestant leader, Admiral Coligny, demanded that a cross be taken from the ruins of a Protestant's house. And a group of Huguenots, loudly mocked a Catholic procession of the consecrated wafer representing the body of Christ. This led to something of a Barney, and by something of a Barney I mean that 40 Huguenots were murdered, which gives cancel culture a new meaning. Catholic preachers thundered against the pollution of a royal Protestant marriage. Still, the marriage went ahead with all due ceremony on the 18th of August, and the Huguenot leadership considered themselves thoroughly content. They stayed for a few days to talk over stuff with the king, and for it was from such a meeting that Coligny returned to his residence in the city. As he did, he passed the house of a servant of the Guise, and from a window he was shot and wounded. But not killed. Now the good admiral had a lot of influence over the young king, and King Charles IX offered Coligny his personal protection, at which Coligny decided it would be rude to leave and so he stayed. A bad call, as it happens. Two days later, on the 24th of August, were the celebrations of St Bartholomew's Day. Now, it's not clear on whose orders Coligny's attempted assassination had gone ahead. It could have been the Guise, of course, maybe Spain, or possibly even Catherine de Medici on a wobble. But the most worried brows belonged to the Guise. Whether or not they were guilty, they reckoned, probably rightly, that they would be blamed. Outside the city was a Huguenot army of 4,000, which rather added to the general panic and worry. The word tinderbox doesn't begin to cover it. Now it's not really clear who started the ball rolling. It could have been the Guise, or maybe it was Catherine de Medici herself, which, but that would seem odd, given that she'd just seen her daughter married. But one story has a late-night gathering of Catherine, Charles and their advisers. At that meeting, a massacre was planned. Early on the 24th, then, before dawn, a group of posh thugs burst into Admiral Coligny's house, led by the Duke of Guise. Coligny sold his life dearly, as the saying goes, but eventually he was run through and his body thrown from the window into the street below, where his head was severed from the rest of his body. Meanwhile, murders of the other Huguenot leaders were in train, some of them by the king's personal bodyguard, the Swiss Guard. Two Huguenot leaders the Prince of Condé and Henri de Navarre were spared when they hurriedly converted to Catholicism. As the city woke up to the celebration of the Saints' Day, things deteriorated. 
Somehow the word got out that the king had ordered that the Protestants should all be killed. Now Huguenots often stood out from the crowd with different dress. And anyway, Catholic and Protestant lived side by side in the city so people knew each other. And so the orgy of the killing of Huguenots started all over the city. The rascal multitude, encouraged by spoil and robbery, ran with their bloody swords raging throughout all the town. They spared not the aged, nor the women, nor the very babies. In joy and triumph, they threw the slain bodies out at the windows, so as there was not in any manner any one street that seemed not strawed with murdered carcasses. One of the remarkable things about St Bolomew's Day and its massacre was the carnival atmosphere in which it was carried out. Victims were paraded as if they were all part of a Mardi Gras festival. Corpses were dragged through the city, body parts offered for sale from butchers' carts. The very word massacre had been a word for a butcher's slab and only now became a word for mass slaughter. Killers went around in good humour, laughing, joking and stopping in taverns to take a break from such thirsty work. At the same time, over 600 houses were sacked and burned, with the massacre providing cover for a bit of looting. The slaughter carried on in Paris for three days. Bodies of the living and the dead were dumped into the Seine. A request for money for the clear-up after the chaos has stopped provides the only firm evidence for numbers of deaths, asking payment to remove 1,100 bodies. And from this, historians try to estimate the number of deaths. The slaughter, though, was not restricted to the city. From Paris, the news ran like ripples in a pool and a wave of killing spread out into the countryside and 12 other cities. Henry the King's brother sent letters actually claiming that the king had ordered the killings. And when the killing was done, indeed Charles IX convened a leader justice claiming that he had indeed ordered the killings of the Huguenot leaders in response to reports of a Huguenot plot. The experience in cities varied. In Bordeaux, a Jesuit priest whipped the crowds on. In others, city leaders tried to suppress killings. Charles IX, meanwhile, hurriedly sent out letters making it clear that he was not ordering the killings, but even that failed to stop the deaths. The killings finally came to an end in October 1572, and France prepared for a fourth round of civil war, which duly came after the Prince of Condé and Henry de Navarre had unconverted. The total number of deaths is endlessly disputed. The lowest rate is for 2,000 deaths in Paris and 3,000 in the provinces, although the high end goes up to 70,000. A more realistic high end is maybe 10,000, of which 3,000 were in Paris. Walsingham and his family were in the city throughout. On the first day, word got around that Walsingham's house was something of a haven for scared Protestants. Walsingham was joined there, for example, by the poet Philip Sidney, as a result of which Sidney and Walsingham formed a close bond, and Sidney would one day marry Walsingham's daughter. That day, a close companion of Coligny, the Sieur de Briquemont, arrived at the house disguised as a porter and begged for sanctuary. Walsingham will have known that he was not safe. With the uncontrolled chaos of the mob, if his house was targeted, the result could well be a nasty death. Nonetheless, Walsingham took Briquemont in and disguised him as a groom. The story doesn't have a happy ending, sadly. Several days later, one of Briquemont's servants was identified and forced to reveal his master's whereabouts. The king's men turned up and demanded entrance to Walsingham's house, 
and that he be handed over. Walsingham went with Briquemont to plead for his life, but all to no avail, as Briquemont was tried and executed for treason. You might wonder why I spent so long on an event which took place in France, rather than in Blighty. The answer is that it's quite difficult to underestimate the impact of St Bart's Day Massacre on the minds of Protestants all over Europe, particularly in England, of course. There was a range of reactions in Europe, and much of them positive at this culling of Protestants. The Spanish ambassador in Paris decked his servants in scarlet cloth in celebration. The Pope was delighted, sending a golden rose to Charles IX and likening the event to the victory of Lepanto over the Turks. Philip II was reputed to have laughed, a rare event indeed. The Pope commissioned a painting wherein you can see Coligny descending from his window. To be fair to said Pope, all the information he received at that stage was that there had been a vicious Huguenot plot to kill the king, which the massacre had averted. He would later, one day, refuse to receive Coligny's assassin as the facts began to be clearer. Other reaction was less delighted. Emperor Maximilian II was horrified and even Ivan the Terrible wrote to express how terrible it was. For the English, the response was complicated. For many, the problem was how to explain this. Why? Why had God allowed such a thing? It must be divine retribution, God's scourge for their sins. Lester told Walsingham that God had visited his people with the scourge of correction. But our sins deserve this and more. In Scotland, the response was the same, and the General Assembly of the Kirk ordered a public humiliation of them that fear God to mitigate God's wrath. The impact was at once cultural and political, the massacre once and for all confirmed in the minds of English Protestants that the Catholic Church was tyrannical, treacherous and murderous. A mass of publications circulated. Marlowe produced his play The Massacre at Paris, playing out murderer in the most graphical way possible. Everyone assumed that the Catholic powers had planned this and that they were in cahoots. Pope, French, Spanish. And now they would be coming for them. There was another panic about Mary, Queen of Scots, that her presence would prompt further plots and invasion and pleas for her execution multiplied. And there were indeed consequences for the Protestant cause. In the Netherlands, the promised aid from Coligny would now no longer come. The towns that had declared for Orange were sacked by the Duke of Alva and the inhabitants put to the sword. The Prince of Orange, the Protestant leader, fled in defeat to the provinces of Holland, vowing to make that province my tomb. For Catholics in England, another stone was laying on the wall of distrust and fear. And for moderates, the job of carrying on their faith in plain sight, once more, made harder. There were odd positives for the English, though, in this French religious chaos. A traditional enemy was weakened, and while this might strengthen the hand of the Spanish, they were occupied in the Netherlands. And meanwhile, the English found they had new partners in the Huguenot, especially at sea. The Huguenot had already tried to establish colonies in Brazil, and from La Rochelle often worked with the English to carry out acts of piracy. Their forms, what the historian N.A.M. Rogers called a Calvinist international of pirates from the Huguenot, the English, Scots and Dutch. 
And meanwhile, French friendship at sea would be very useful to Drake in the Caribbean. Talking of French friendship, what about the Treaty of Blois? Surely that was blown out of the water? Well, actually not, and it's a nice example of how realpolitik and religion competed. England simply could not afford to dump the treaty with France. They feared Flanders would be overwhelmed by the Catholic League and that England was in mortal danger. Walsingham was desperate to leave after the horrors of St Bartholomew and to his joy his Queen gave him permission to do so, but in the event the French insisted that he stay, worried his departure would be seen as a breach so soon after the events of St Bartholomew's Day. And so it was not until April 1573 that Walsingham returned to Blighty and the Treaty of Blois survived. But Walsingham was not convinced, writing, I leave it to your honours now to judge what account you may make of this amity with this crown. If I may without presumption or offence say my opinion, considering how things currently stand, I think it less peril to live with them as enemies than as friends. We'll leave the last word with Francis then. As it happens, the curate's egg thing was not so bad. It took a whole episode to introduce you to Walsingham and cover St Bartholomew's Day. Next time then, we'll start on another bit of the egg, namely a horribly superficial flyby of West Africa. Have a great fortnight and see you in West Africa. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.